Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. If there's one thing I know, it's that people love to be told what to do. Men, women, children, we all just love to be given no option, just a single choice. Either do it, or do it. I think I can speak for all of us when I say, for too long I've been using my brain to think like a sucker. If I had only known that by placing the right people in positions of power, my autonomy and all the headache that brings would be mercifully removed from my overburdened and somewhat furry shoulders, I would have drastically reconsidered which jar I dropped my marble into. On today's episode, we'll first be mandated the opportunity to help victims of a massive scam, then we'll have the joy of knowing we did our part, forced upon us, and finally we'll be given just a little too much slack on that leash and get it all tangled up. So, go grab your wallet, prepare to be disappointed, and stop doing that. That's why we can't have nice things. Looking at our marching orders, it appears that here we go. Every parent of a child old enough to string even a couple words together has heard this magical phrase that just makes you so proud. The phrase, it's not fair. Yes, nothing better than having a child that you take care of. You clean and clothe, feed, provide for, care for, and love. Then he or she looks at you when you tell him or her to do a thing. Arms crossed. Look on that face. Yes, you, you know the look. And he or she says, but that's not fair. Of course, I think as parents... We can all agree that we never acted like this. It's this new generation. They're just the worst. Am I right? You can agree with me. It's just between you and me. I won't tell anyone. Early on in the life of my child, as those words tumbled out of the lips of my precious, cherub-faced, red-haired daughter, I lovingly explained to her that if she'd like things to be fair, that's something I would be more than happy to make happen. I then explained to her how, as a single father, I worked a full-time job to provide clothing and food, heat in the winter, cool in the summer, toys, vacations, and everything else. I also explained that I mowed the lawn, took care of the animals, washed the clothes and dishes, cleaned the house, cooked the meals, and took care of her. I then looked at her, told her that I would love to split all of these things up fairly, and asked her if she still wanted things to be made fair. She was less interested. Every once in a while, I had to give this little explanation again, but only a few times through her almost 16 years thus far have I had to extend that offer. One of the proudest moments as a parent was years later, when she was with a friend. The friend said something wasn't fair, and I overheard my child correct her and tell her that she really didn't want things to be fair, just ask my dad. Now, over the last handful of years, we've been hearing a lot of talk about equity and equality, specifically as it applies to the black population of the United States. And don't get me wrong, from what I've seen, nearly all blacks, whites, and every melanin level in between want there to be equality for all, 
We want everyone to have an equal opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Seems like I heard that somewhere before. Only a small subset of Americans are fighting for equity, specifically for equity of outcome. Generally, this is being pushed for one reason, to soak the rich, redistribute to those they deem to be discriminated against because of their, quote, race. And if these champions of equity happen to become one of those filthy rich in the process, well, you know, kind of a finder's fee, eh, so be it. So we have these people crying for equity, which isn't an American thing. It's not a capitalist thing. It's not a biblical thing. It's a socialist or Marxist or communist thing. And that's all. And side note, communism has been the largest cause of death of humans in all of modern history at an estimated and probably a low estimate, body count of 100 million people in the last 100 years. Jesus himself said that there will always be the poor among us. In fact, at the end of time, when Christ comes back, and however this whole crown thing works for those of us that are saved, we know that not everyone will get the same number of crowns. That'll be a moot point as we cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus, but still, we all won't do the same amount of casting. All this means is that equity of outcome has never been guaranteed. But here we are today, with a progressive income tax that's not fair, with social programs that aren't fair, with a government that cares very little about fairness, and now we have the latest attempt at being grossly unfair, student loan forgiveness. Now, by now, you've all heard the proposal given by President Vegetable. If you qualify, as in you're not one of the evil rich, you can get either $10,000 or $20,000 just forgiven off of your federal loans. Additionally, your payment is capped at a relatively small percentage, 5% of your annual, well, not income, but discretionary income. That's the money you have left over after taxes and what they deem as essentials. Plus, there are a variety of new payment plans and programs, plus other ways to get all or some of your loans forgiven over time, etc., etc. We've heard that this will cost the American taxpayer upwards of $1 trillion to forgive these loans. And let's be honest, this isn't fair. People that saved to pay cash for college will get nothing. People that worked to pay off their loans will get nothing. People who work just to make ends meet who never went to college, will be paying the bills of those that took out loans to get what should have been a job that would justify the loans they signed for. And this doesn't change the loan process, the loan structure, the tuition costs, etc. Nothing moving into the future. So in a few short years, we'll be back at this loan crisis bubble thing again. And this is simply the height of unfairity. But even with all of this, there are still some who are angry that it's only ten dollars or $20,000. They wanted all of their debt just wiped from the books. And with the moratorium on student loan payments ending in January 2023, after only two years of not having to make a payment, there are adult children that are in an absolute tizzy about how unfair it is that they're actually going to have to pay the rest of their loans. And many have no idea what this kind of hateful hardship thrust upon them by us will do to them, as they've just not had enough time to figure out how to pay off the remaining balance. Well, if that's you, don't fear. Found on CNBC.com headline, $10,000 of your student debt has been canceled, but you still have more. Now what? 
Now, to many of us, college-educated or not, it seems like this should be a simple answer. Now what? Well, sir, you pay the payment you agreed to until the amount you borrowed and agreed to pay off is paid off. But that's only part of the story. That's old think right there. CNBC Select asked some experts to enlighten us as to what could be done, and lucky for us, they shared their sage wisdom. Sadly, because we're obviously a hateful country, full of hateful haters, there will be 25 million smudge-faced children with fingerless gloves holding their empty gruel bowl that will still have loan balances to pay off because the chintzy, stingy, practically inconsequential amount of money just given to them for no reason except they exist and borrowed money they didn't have to get a degree that may or may not be worth the papers printed on, with full knowledge that they would be expected to pay it back, with interest, it wasn't enough to pay all the money they borrowed. So whatever can these young, frail, innocent, and shall we just say victims do? Well, the first suggestion is make a budget. Seems kind of uncaring and kind of like work. Not sure that's going to be widely accepted. The recommendation is that before they have to start paying again, quote, borrowers should use the time before payments kick back in to get their finances in order. As part of that, you can calculate your new monthly payment, and there are all sorts of new programs extending your term out to 25 years or more or using a graduating payment amount over time. So sharpen that pencil and get that slide ruler out. The expert gives this piece of advice. Now, you may want to grab a pen to write this down or maybe just rewind the tape later. Quote, you want to make sure that your essential expenses, including your monthly student loan payments, don't exceed your income. Huh. Huh. Well, I don't know why, but I guess that's why I'm not the expert. My advice is probably this, just ignore this, as making a budget is hard. The next suggestion is one that's just full of absolute hate, in my opinion. Quote, start paying down debt now. I mean, now? Before I have to? But maybe the White House resident, Uncle Child Sniffer, will tell us that we don't have to again. We should probably just wait. Now, their advice is that payments prior to January 1 will be applied fully to principal, where after January 1, interest will again be figured in. That also seems mean. But whatever. I say just ignore that one. Paying back money is hard. Now, the next suggestion is to sign up for auto pay, which, yes, that sounds much easier. If I don't have to be bothered with... First of all, remembering to get online every single month. Second, remembering my password every single month. And third, clicking probably upwards of three or four buttons every month just to have my money stolen from me that I owe them. It would be much easier. And by doing this, you could potentially get a small reduction in the interest rate of the loan and you won't be tempted to spend that money on something else. So my advice, think about this one. Signing up would be hard, but after that it would be easier. But them just taking your money from you is hard. So give it some thought, but but do that part later. Think about it later. It's, it's hard to think about things. The next tip is to build an emergency fund. <laughs> Slow down there, Dave Ramsey. 
a lot of these kids don't have extra money just laying around after all of their designer brand essential shoes and clothes and Starbucks and vacations. I mean, where exactly do these so-called experts, I'd like to see some credentials, think they're going to get this money from? So they're saying that before payments kick in and the money you have left over between your old payment and new payment, once repayment does kick in, should be shuffled over to an emergency fund of three to six months of normal expenses for the use of unexpected or emergency expenses. Now, my advice would be to really give this some thought as this would be mean. You you couldn't use all that extra cash for sweet stuff and things, which would be hard, but it would just be sitting in an account somewhere if you needed, you know, like an emergency grande latte, mocha frappe, whip, almond milk, 30 sugars, coffee thing. Look, I don't drink coffee or whatever the heck they make at Starbucks. The point is this would be hard, but only if you're as crazy strict as these experts want you to be. And the last piece of advice is for those of you stupid enough to have taken out private student loans. I mean, what were you thinking? You always go back to daddy government to provide for your needs. But if you're in this position, you might be able to refinance those loans to get a better rate. That might make it easier. But my advice be prepared to fill out paperwork and just know that that's hard. And and we know that time is money, so, you know. Now, the final word, the last bit of wisdom given is this nugget. Again, get your pen ready. Quote, unless you're eligible for a forgiveness program that's going to wipe out your debt completely at some point in the future, it's more helpful for you to pay it down over time rather than procrastinate. Um... Okay, yeah, makes sense. But actually, the point is that maybe if your income is tight right now, but you think it'll go up in the future, maybe you can take advantage of a longer repayment term or graduated interest or payment amounts. That might make it easier. Okay, so I joke, mainly because this kind of all seems like common sense. But as they say, common sense ain't so common no more. Unfortunately, there are a lot of college graduates that are literally just lost, scared, and confused right now. And an article like this is their only hope. Now, I'm not joking about these things being hard, not because they really are, but because the perception these days seems to be, can't somebody else do it? The frustrating thing for me is the blatant unfairness of it all, like I mentioned in the intro, the lack of recognition of the unfairness of it by many or most of those that will be getting the forgiveness, and the lack of recognition by so many people about the futility of it all. As the left always does, they offer very short-term quasi-solutions for much bigger problems, problems that, for the most part, are government, and in large part the left, created in the first place. The reason we're in this position is because our government, primarily the left, pushed everyone to get a college degree whether they wanted one or not, and to incentivize that they made getting a government loan unbelievably easy and almost guaranteed no matter who you are. The reality is not everyone is college material. Some do not have the aptitude for college. Sorry if that sounds hurtful, but that's the truth. Some are interested in college. Not every job or career requires college. I went to college with a guy who was going because he was the last chance his parents had to have a kid go to college. But all he ever really wanted to do was drive big trucks over the road or local, but big trucks. He made it to the last year and dropped out. He was plenty smart. He could have easily graduated. But instead, he wasted three years of tuition because he felt he had to. And then he still dropped out and did what he loved. And he's still doing it. 
We always use the example of garbage men, but it's true. Garbage men do not need to go to college. And wow, am I thankful they're willing to do the job they do. Now that said, should we take out loans at all? Well, if you ask Dave Ramsey, the answer is no. At least not unless it's a mortgage. And even then, not if you don't have to. He points to specific Bible references, such as the borrower is slave to the lender, and for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, and also neither a borrower nor a lender be. (laughs) No, did I get you? That last one is Shakespeare, not the Bible. A lot of people think it's in the Bible, though. To the point, I agree with Ramsey. Don't take out loans if you can help it, and don't take out loans for silly stuff. Now, I'm not as big of a stickler, although I currently have no loans myself, except for my mortgage. But in the future, there's a chance I might take out a loan for something. But it won't be for a foolish thing. And it would be paid off as fast as possible, if it were to happen at all. The reality is the Bible cautions us against borrowing, but it doesn't forbid us from doing it. What it does do is tell us to repay what we borrowed. This is the other side of the frustration. I've had plenty of loans in the past. I signed my name. I made my payments. I paid it all back. Everything I borrowed with the interest I agreed to pay. There were already a variety of repayment programs, ways to get part or all of your loans forgiven, caps on monthly payment amounts, hardship deferrals, etc., etc. And with the idiotic COVID lockdowns and the extension of unemployment benefits, which are more government cash handouts, people are now thinking that not only should someone else take care of things for them, but that they will and that they must take care of these things for them. There are stories out there of younger people taking out loans at excessive interest rates for cars priced dramatically higher than they should be, and then the car breaks to the point it's not worth fixing, and the owner's asking what they need to fill out to have their loan dismissed since their car broke. Yeah, that's not how it works. As long as the loan was legal, you owe it. I owned a hopped-up, very fast snowmobile that the engine died on three times. We, and by... By we, I mean my dad and my future brother-in-law fixed it twice, and the third time I sold it broken. I was done with it. But I had a loan on it, and being in high school, it was a lot to pay back on my Hardy's wage. But I paid it back. I didn't like it. I didn't want to. But there was never a question. The Bible tells us in Psalm 37:21, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. If you borrow, pay it back. And you may say that the government is being righteous. They're being generous, but they're not. It's not their money to be generous with. This money is the taxpayer's money. And forced charity, which is what this is, is not charity. I have my own bills. I have a kid that will be going to college or tech school in a few years. One who will be getting a car in the very near future. I don't want to pay for someone else who agreed to pay back what I'm now being forced to pay back for them. And that's not because I'm uncharitable. I actually give a decent percentage of my income to a variety of charities, but I give it to my church and to charities of my choice, just as I would never pay for my child to get a degree in something I don't agree with based on my beliefs. I don't want a penny of my tax dollars going to pay for someone else's kid to get a degree that's counter to my beliefs either. Now, there is a chance that this entire program is shot down. The reality is that the president doesn't actually have the right or the power to do this. Even the crypt keeper, Nancy Pelosi, has said as much. So there are a number of governors and, more importantly, attorneys general that are looking at bringing suit against Biden and the White House to stop this. And it'll cause mass freak out, a bunch of screaming at the sky, to be sure. But this is an illegal and stupid use of tax dollars 
or more realistically, a stupid thing for the country to take on as more debt. I'm sorry that there are some that were duped into borrowing money to pay too much to a college to get a degree that has no practical use or income potential, and now they're stuck. But that's what we call a lesson learned. Sometimes those lessons are hard. But there are some real solutions to these problems, long-lasting solutions. First, how about a class action suit against colleges that promised these degrees would be worth something? Not that the job market would be good, they can't control that, but that they said a doctorate in women's studies would be a lucrative degree. Shouldn't they be held to some sort of truth in advertising? If the student wants to take a useless degree in a very narrow field, the college should be required to be very honest about the prospects of that degree. Second, how about the government get out of the student loan business, revert student loans back to private banks that evaluate your current family and or student financial situation, the degree being sought, the income potential, the academics of the student, etc. And then they decide if the student is a low enough risk to make the loan and at what interest rate they'll make the loan. As I said, the colleges jack their prices up when the government guaranteed kids would get loans. Third, how about we cap tuition to raise only as fast as inflation, both private and public colleges? We regulate all sorts of things, why not this? Now, depending on where you look, you may find that the cost of tuition really hasn't gone up that bad, but a nice little study reported on by Fox Business shows that the cost of private and public colleges have gone out of control as compared to inflation from 1970 to today. Our student loan bubble would be much smaller if college cost about half of what it does today, which is still slightly higher than the rate of inflation. Fourth, what if we promoted not only four-year colleges, but tech schools, apprenticeships, and non-college careers as well? Like I said, not everyone is college material. And that's not only okay, but that's great. Everyone has their own calling. Just present all of the options without trying to shove people one way or the other. Finally, what if we mandate that these colleges with massive endowments that are sitting there collecting interest are forced to use their endowments or to take out their own loans if they want to pay their professors or make improvements or whatever, and the tuition that's capped to inflation isn't taking in enough money. Again, I'm not for regulating, but I also see no reason why Harvard should have $42 billion in a savings account while increasing tuition at a rate of two and a half times that of inflation. If they need all of that tuition money to pay for professors and improvements and programs and whatever else, then I'd almost say that they're paying too much for improvements or paying their professors way more than they're worth. There's something wrong there. Now, I realize that some of these sound too big government-ish, but the reality is these ideas wouldn't actually force them to do anything but become grounded back to reality. Once they adjust back, there wouldn't be any undue government intervention. They've just gone out of control at this point, and they need to be realigned to the rest of humanity. Okay, so how do I wrap this up? Well, the tips given in this article are actually pretty good tips for everyone. Make a budget, pay down your debt, auto pay is great so you don't miss a payment, and you may actually get an interest rate break. Build that emergency fund and refinance debt if and only if it makes sense, not just to have extra money to spend on garbage. 
And then I'd add, use the Dave Ramsey baby steps, or at least the debt snowball. Pay off that debt as fast as possible. And if you don't have debt, don't become a slave to the lender. Loans, credit cards, buy now, pay later, whatever. Stay away from all of it if you can. But if you do take out a loan, if you do incur debt, understand what you're getting into and then fulfill your agreed to obligation and pay it back. Finally, think before you act. Pray about it. Consult the Bible. Consult trusted friends or family. Then make the best choices you can and be responsible for yourself. Life can be hard. It can be even harder when we do or try to do things. Sometimes those things don't work out the way we hoped or wanted. So take responsibility, learn from your mistakes, bring your concerns to God, and grow so that you can make better choices next time. Well, I've been saying this over and over, and you openly refuse to listen to me, and now here we are. You've really got nobody to blame but yourself. I also blame you. Quote, Cars change the world. And not just by making it easier to get around, these vehicles have shaped everything from how fast we can travel to the way we design cities. But now, and that's where we'll end the first paragraph of this story and tell you that found on Vox.com headline, it's the end of the car as we know it. Yep, you didn't think I was serious, did you? Now look, I'm not someone to say, I told you so. But that's a lie. I absolutely am. So I told you that the goal of going all electric had nothing to do with saving the planet. It has everything to do with just eliminating vehicles, dramatically reducing travel, with the eventual goal of just keeping us in smaller and smaller communes, you know, sectors, like in the Hunger Games. Anyway, so the author of this Vox article, Rebecca Heilweil, or something, interviews British author Brian Appleyard about cars and the future of cars, and Brian, apparently a car enthusiast of some sorts, is rather bearish on car futures, shall we say. Now, what I find fantastical and kind of sad is that the typical leftist, which, writing for Vox, trust me, she's a lefty, legitimately think that they're on the right side of history, that they're saving democracy, Side note, America has never been, is not now, a democracy as a democracy is just one step from socialism. So, I don't know, maybe we're getting close here. Regardless, they think they're saving the American way of life. They think they're helping the climate and saving Mother Earth. They think they're progressing toward a better future. And they've heard the lies and spin so many times they don't even think about it anymore. To use a biblical phrase, their hearts are hardened to reality, to the point that it doesn't matter how crazy something sounds to sane people, they're positive, they're right, because they simply can't be wrong. So let's get into this article a little bit, and let's see what the claims are, what the purported future of the car is, what's happened recently that's actually given me hope with regard to this topic, yeah, believe it or not. And let's tie it up into our faith. So, the premise of this article is that cars as we know them and car engines are dead. And might I add, good riddance. As the author states, the fossil fuel burning internal combustion engine, quote, takes a devastating toll on the environment, accounting for more than half of transportation's overall greenhouse gas emissions, emitting tailpipe pollutants that hurt local air quality, and contribute to climate change. 
<laughs> She's not done yet. Quote, these vehicles pose an immediate physical threat to people in or around them, too. Car accidents in the United States kill about as many people as firearms do, and more than a million deaths occur on roadways each year worldwide. <laughs> okay, hold on, a little bit more. Quote, with the rise of the car has also come the rise of car-centric infrastructure, infrastructure that's contributed to racist, classist, and socially isolating urban design choices, all at the expense of investment in public transportation. So you, a filthy uh, car driver, are destroying the environment, killing people, and you're a racist. You still want to drive your little vroom vroom? You're racist. Thankfully, the solution is already here. The electric vehicle. And sure, petrol-engined murder cars are the dominant cars right now, but EVs clearly have them in their sights. And why? Well, because they cut down on emissions. And, and, she also said that they're easier to drive and to maintain. Don't worry that they're only 3% of new car sales right now. People will be clamoring for them soon. You know, because they'll see the benefits, the easier drivability and maintainability, and they won't be able to keep their hands off of them. <laughs> oh, and... Also, that you know, side note here, the government is putting in billions of dollars into efforts to force, uh, encourage people to buy them. And they're putting in a nationwide charging network and they're, quote, developing an American supply chain for EVs through the Inflation Reduction Act's revamped EV tax credit. <sighs> okay, I've got to stop there for a minute. Trust me, there's more to come. This is like unwrapping one of those Christmas presents that has wrapping after wrapping after wrapping, and you finally get to the center, and it's like an old toilet paper roll with a used Kleenex in it. I mean, that's that's what that's pretty much what this is, yeah. I know you're excited to see what comes next. So anyway, let's back up a bit. This will be quick. You'll have to kind of take my word for some of this stuff. Just do your own research and dig deeper if you'd like, but if I dig all the way deeper on all of these things, we'll be here forever. So pollution and climate change. I absolutely agree that in big cities, gas-engined cars can really contribute to smog. So yes, a local, short-lived, potentially drastic reduction in air quality. Now, as I've stated in a handful of past episodes, this planet is designed to clean itself up. The COVID lockdowns, as tyrannical and stupid as those were, proved that in a short period of time, the smog cleared up dramatically. If all things were equal, cost and range, maintenance cost, etc., the large cities would be the best place for a legitimate electric vehicle. See, I'm not anti-EV. I'm anti-mandated EV. Even in their current state, for the right situation, they're perfectly designed. As for climate change, no. There's literally no clear evidence that man has caused any climate change. There are too many variables. There's too many warmer and cooler periods in the past prior to the Industrial Revolution to claim that cars are doing anything. Now, regarding deaths. She tries to scare you, which would work with her typical uninformed leftist reader, with comparing vehicle deaths to gun deaths. In 2021, deaths from car crashes were 16th on the list of causes of death in the U.S., with right at 38,000. 
there are about 287 million cars in the United States. So if we just did a simple division, that means that 0.013% of total cars maximum were involved in fatal crashes. More to the point, Americans drive approximately 3.2 trillion miles per year. That means that we have one death for every 84,210,526 miles per year. What this author wants you to believe is that if we go with EVs, deaths go away. But it's not quite that simple. In fact, we've already had at least a few people die while driving, or at least sitting behind the wheel of an EV, and I have a hard time believing that we're at 84 million miles driven by EVs total. I have no idea if that data is even out there, but as it stands right now, EVs, I can pretty much guarantee, are more deadly. As for the world stage that she jumped to very quickly, you know, so we associate one million deaths with gun deaths, Trust me, that's that's what she did. That's why she did it that way. But as for the 1 million deaths per year due to car accidents in the world, there are somewhere around 1.4 billion vehicles in the world. 1 million deaths is 0.07% of cars maximum. And yes, that percentage is higher than the U.S., but have you seen some of these other countries? Next, let's tackle the racist thing. Okay. This really depends on how you look at it. There's actually some credence to this in the early days of building the interstate highway system and even the state road developments. From what I've seen, it is actually a fact that in some cases, major roadways were placed in locations that split whites from blacks, or major roads were routed through the poorer, often blacker neighborhoods, rather than through the wealthier, whiter neighborhoods. Now, keep in mind, the highway system was started and, and Now, keep in mind, the highway system was started and constructed in large part during the civil rights era. Did those in charge purposefully try to stick it to black people? I don't know, maybe. But at this point, we're decades past that, decades past the civil rights era, and despite what all the Dems want us to believe, we're literally not a racist country anymore. Now, she said this was done at the expense of public transport. Uh, okay, Americans don't like public transport. Uh, public transport, you know, it kind of sucks. It's dirty, it's slow, it's smelly, it's usually sticky, and it's nasty. And there's usually some crazy or violent nut trapped in this box with you. Plus, the United States is not set up for public transport. The big cities are. But in reality, big cities that could effectively use public transport are using it. And they're the vast minority of what we have in the United States. I'll come back to that in a moment. Then she says that our benevolent government is pumping their hard-earned money, billions of American currency units, in fact, into helping us move to EVs. They're creating a charging network and giving us tax incentives. So, first of all, keep in mind that every last cent they're putting into this is our money that they're stealing from us in taxes. Now, I say stealing, as this is not what taxes should be used for. There are legitimate uses for tax money, and I have no problem paying my taxes. I have a problem with people wasting my money on garbage. So let's hit the tax credit quickly. Well, first of all, that credit, $7,500, only applies to a handful of cars. Most of them, Tesla's included, 
won't be eligible. Second, as soon as this credit was announced, Ford raised the price of the Mustang EV by $8,500, and the Ford F-150 Lightning by $7,000, and GM raised the price of their Hummer EV by $6,250. Now, all of these were, it's just, it was because of increased costs of materials, stuff like, definitely not because the government just gave away more money, which is definitely not the exact same reason why colleges jacked up their tuition rates, you know, way, way up, as soon as the government pretty much said that they won't deny student loans to anyone. And let me point out, EVs are in the $40,000 for the really base junk model to well over $100,000. The people buying these cars are some middle, but mostly upper middle class and those considered to be wealthy, but they'll get the tax credit, meaning those that are working, living check to check, maybe working a couple jobs to make ends meet, are paying the wealthy to buy electric vehicles. That kind of seems like, um, kind of like theft, right? As for this charging network, this wasn't money from the Inflation Reduction Act that everyone everywhere agrees will do nothing to reduce inflation. It was actually money from the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed at the end of 2021. The goal is to have something like 500,000 fast charging stations in the United States by 2030 or something like that. I didn't care enough to look it back up again. Well, as of right now, there are about 115,000 gas stations in the United States. But here's what you need to keep in mind. A charging station means one charger. A gas station means, I don't even know what, an average of 10 or 20 pumps per station. Let's just say it's 10. I think that's probably low, but let's say 10. That's 1.15 million gas pumps with an average time of, what, two minutes, five minutes at the pump? That's versus 500,000 chargers which will never happen by 2030, on a grid that can't handle them at an average of 30 minutes, 45 minutes per charge? Tell me how this is going to work. Now let's go a little bit farther into this article now. The author and her British interviewee agree that EVs are shmeevies. The real transition is to self-driving cars, all connected to central computer systems, to not only control them, but to track them and track you and even more toward ride-sharing like Uber and Lyft. I mean, why do you even need a license or a car if someone else has one? And really, why do we even need those cars? Because we can just have public transport. That's really where the industry and society needs to go. And that's about as far as I'll go in this article. You can read the rest if you'd like. The link is in the notes. So speaking of Uber, and eventually public transportation, which is exactly where the concept leads, where they want it to lead, can you decide to live off on your own, on your own plot of acreage, 40, 50 miles or more from work or from town, and expect to ride share or use public transport every day? How practical does that actually sound? But see, to the two individuals involved with this article, a lefty and someone from living on top of each other, merry old England, they don't actually think about that. They think about city life. And in the city, sure, ride sharing, public transport, even alternative forms of transport, those things can work. And they do work to large degree. But the only way this plan works for the United States is if we all get shoved into cities. 
And if you look at all of the burdensome regulations they're putting on farmers, more and more farmers are throwing in the trowel. See what I did there? Less and less kids are growing up to be farmers, and the government and large corporations are taking it all over. I mean, look at all the regulations by the environmental agencies. If you want to build out somewhere in the sticks, they don't even want you to disturb the ground, the land, the trees, a bug. Furthermore, look at big cities. They tend to be where those on the left like to congregate. I'm not sure why, but that's definitely what happens. So what exactly is going on here? Well, we absolutely know that there's no intention to replace gas-powered cars with electric cars one for one. Nobody believes the grid could power that, and there isn't anything realistic being done to upgrade the grid. We know that those on the left, and probably more on the right than we'd like to imagine, really want the government to be in control of uh, life. From healthcare to social programs, energy, means of production, and food, and everything else, they prefer to eliminate privately owned farms, and small businesses, and would rather use the Chinese model of capitalism, which is kind of government-owned and controlled partnerships between the private sector, and think huge companies, and the government. We know that there are many who would like to keep all of us in control, a lot more than they currently do, and we know that there are around 50% of the population that apparently has no problem with that as long as they're taken care of. Now, I'm not trying to say that EVs are the keystone to this plan, but it is a point that can be pushed back on. So I said I had some hope. Well, trust me, I think about this stuff uh, way too much, all the time. I'm not proud of that, it's just a fact. You would not want to be in my head. Well, as the first round of EVs are getting older, stories are starting to trickle out about how expensive they are to fix. The major expense, of course, is the battery and the battery will fail eventually. Now, the motors could theoretically last for decades. I've seen electric motors at my job that have been running nearly 24-7 for 40 years, 50 years or more, and as long as we keep them mounted and aligned correctly, keep the bearings greased, they just won't ever die. Now, I wish I could say the same for computers, which is what an EV is mostly made of, just a massive computing network inside the car. So, the cost of parts may not be awful, but the cost to diagnose could be outrageous depending on the problem. But the battery is the killer. They're expensive. They're a failure item. They wear out. And because of that, the EV will have no resale market or value. It will just be impractical to replace the battery. So, send the car to the crusher. Now, we're also seeing statistics that are showing people that bought EVs are either reselling them quickly or using it until they can't anymore and then vowing to never buy another EV again. And can we talk about the grid for just a moment? This week, California, the state that just passed a bill saying they won't allow combustion-engined cars to be sold in the state by 2030, this state just sent out an alert asking people to refrain from charging their EVs at the peak times as the grid is on the point of overload. It's so much on the point of overload that the request or mandate went out from on high to not set your thermostat below 78 and to also not charge your electric vehicle between the hour of 4 and 9 p.m. Additionally, for the first time, they fired up their emergency natural gas generators to help feed the grid, you know, so it didn't melt into the earth, and they've delayed taking their remaining nuclear plant offline for another five years because if they do, it'll turn into Mad Max over there. 
Oh, and California's grid operator restricted maintenance activities for the week ending with Labor Day weekend to make sure that all components, all lines, all generators were online. And even with that, they had some blackouts and power losses, and nowhere near as many as everyone was worried about, but they did have some. And this is because everything that's already on the grid is working harder in the hot temperatures, namely air conditioning. And this happened within a week or so of the bill passing saying everyone in California must buy an EV. And people from every political persuasion have noticed the irony, which is a very good thing. This kind of idiocy being forced by our overlords needs to be called out for what it is. So here's my thought process on this. If an EV would work for you and you can afford it, do it. That's your choice. But for most of us, we need to wait them out. By need, I mean both from the standpoint of forcing our benevolent leaders to stop mandating their leftist dreams on us, and need from a standpoint of just not being able to use an EV in any sort of practical way in our lives. Also, how confident are you that this 500,000 strong charging network will happen by 2030? I'm not overly confident they can do it. I mean, maybe, maybe. We're already seeing that as more and more people start to purchase EVs, more and more people are becoming angry with EVs because of range, charge time, repair costs, reliability, etc. As more people figure out that it's not as cheap to charge your car as they thought, and as more cars get attached to the grid and we have more warnings to conserve electricity, or more blackouts or more thermostats that are locked at a certain temperature by a central computer, people are going to revolt. And I'm not talking about an armed, violent revolt. I'm talking about people that just refuse to go along with the stupidity. Now, if we all vote correctly and vote out the leftists, vote out the pretender conservatives, and get true conservatives in office, it's possible all of this idiocy gets rolled back and we replace it with actual science, actual facts, actual logic. And if that happens, this is all moot. I'm not optimistic that'll happen. So we do what a lot of us did with things like unenforceable mask mandates or illegal vax mandates. We just refuse. We figure out other ways of doing things. We just wait them out. If the Constitution still exists, a handful of elected and unelected public servants turned tyrants can say what they want, can stomp and cry and scream and lie, but they can't push Americans where we refuse to go. I, for one, do not plan on buying an EV. I could probably use one for a lot of my day-to-day -day world, but as a reliability engineer, as a person with knowledge of cars, of computers, of batteries, and of money and return on investment, as well as someone that doesn't care one bit about a status symbol, buying an EV for me would just be stupid. And I don't want to be stupid. But that's the problem, isn't it? Common sense appears to be in the final death throes. And why would it not be? You can't disconnect from true truth and stay logically grounded. It's like an astronaut taking a spacewalk without a tether. You can see the truth, you can talk about the truth, but if you're not tethered to it, you eventually die a hypoxic, dark, lonely, frozen death. Okay, look, I know I mix my metaphors some. You know what I mean. The Bible clearly tells us over and over that we must be people of common sense. Proverbs 3.21 My child, don't lose sight of common sense and discernment. Hang on to them. Proverbs 8.5 O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. 
Proverbs 9.12. If you become wise, you will be the one to benefit. If you scorn wisdom, you will be the one to suffer. Proverbs 13.20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 21.16. The person who strays from common sense will end up in the company of the dead. See, I told you. Proverbs 27.12. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. And 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear has been used these days more than ever in my lifetime as a weapon. And I've said it many times over the last couple of years, I never never thought that people in general, and especially not the majority of the American population on the left or the right, would be so easily duped by fear. A few so-called experts, some hastily thrown together models, remember models are nothing but computerized opinions, a relentless agenda-driven media, and the majority of the population quickly embraced the spirit of fear, throughout power, throughout love, and throughout a sound mind. And we're doing it again. We're being told that the planet will burn, that despite everything we see with our eyes, electric cars, the removal of fossil fuels, that is our savior. So Christians, this is your time to step up in both the spiritual world and the physical world. It's our time to show people that fear does not control us, that we have control of our faculties, and that we are lovers of logic and common sense, because God is a God of logic and common sense, not fear and chaos. And as children of God, we strive to be like Him. So, Christian, if you want an EV, fine, do it. But do it because it makes sense, because you've weighed out the options, because you've looked at the realistic future potential and you feel that it's the best use of the money that God has blessed you with. Do not buy an EV based on fear. So, overall, in all things, be people of power in Christ, love for God and neighbor, and a sound, calm, controlled, logical mind. Well, we've nearly made it. We've nearly wrapped up our look at the governing document of our country for a few years before we realized that, uh, wow, we got to do better than this. Welcome back to the American Genesis. On this episode, we'll work through Articles 10, 11, 12, and 13, as well as the closing statement. And don't worry, all of those combined are shorter than just the one paragraph in Article 9 regarding state boundaries. This should be a rather short segment, but let's start and see where it takes us. So in Article 10, we read, The committee of the states, or any nine of them, shall be authorized to execute in the recess of Congress such of the powers of Congress as the United States, in Congress assembled, by the consent of nine states, shall, from time to time, think expedient to vest them with, provided that no power be delegated to the said committee for the exercise of which, by the Articles of Confederation, the voice of nine states in the Congress of the United States assembled is requisite. Got that? <laughs> no, you don't. I guarantee you don't. This is a word salad. I'm sure it made sense back then. I, I hope it did. But in our vernacular of today, this single sentence with 14 commas and one semicolon is similar to the and such and such begat who's it and who's it begat whatchamacallit sections of the Bible. Our eyes kind of glaze over and we figure this is probably important. I'll let the experts figure it out. 
The article itself is fairly simple, and it harkens back to Article 9, where the Congress was given the authority to create a committee of the states. This committee was supposed to be manned by at least one representative from each state. Each state had only one vote, regardless of the number of reps. And those 13 reps would kind of hold down the fort when the official Congress was in recess. Remember, all of these federal employees were literally public servants, unlike today where they're public servants in name only. Holding a position in Congress or on the committee wasn't a career, it was more of a nuisance. Most of them, and I don't think I could claim all, but most of them did this for love of country because they felt they must because the country needed guidance. They didn't do it to be powerful or famous or rich or to work as a lobbyist if they ever retire. They cared about the country. So when Congress went on recess, you know, to take care of their own lives and families and homes, they could appoint this committee to take over with certain limitations to their power to make decisions that must be made using an appointed president with some sort of supermajority type of system. Moving on to Article 11. Canada, acceding to this confederation and joining in the measures of the United States, shall be admitted into and entitled to all the advantages of this union, but no other colony shall be admitted into the same unless such admission be agreed to by nine states. Okay, this is my favorite little nugget in the entire articles. Canada was invited to be part of the United States, like formally a standing invite in the country's governing document. This offer was extended upon the official ratification of the Articles, with Maryland being the last state to sign, on March 1st, 1781. Canada, had they accepted, would have been our 14th state. Now, at the time, obviously Canada was not Canada like we have it today. It was much smaller, made up of Ontario and Quebec territories, but it would have approximately doubled the land size that made up the United States. As for the population, it was made up of French and British citizens, as well as loyalists that fled from the colonies as the revolution raged on. The total number of people were somewhere around 150,000, although no census was taken until about three years later. So, based on population, it would have been the ninth or tenth largest state. But a lot of land. Cold, snowy land. Plus, we would have got that funny accent, eh? Now, spoiler alert. Canada didn't take us up on the offer, and the offer was officially taken off the table with the ratification of the Constitution, which nullified the Articles of Confederation. In fact, a poll was taken in 2004 asking Canadians and Americans if they'd be interested in a merger. Only 7% of Canadians and 19% of Americans had any interest in doing that. I kind of wonder what that poll would be like today, with the absolute insanity and tyranny of Canada's current Prime Minister, Justin Blackface, but it doesn't matter because he's a liberal progressive turdeau, I'd say that you'd probably have a larger percentage of Canadians that would rather be part of the U.S., and for the exact opposite reason, I bet more Americans would love to have the progressive leftists as part of our country so they can just keep destroying everything, you know, that makes the United States the United States. But as I tend to do, I digress. Moving from my favorite hidden nugget on to Article 12. All bills of credit emitted, monies borrowed, and debts contracted by or under the authority of Congress before the assembling of the United States in pursuance of the present Confederation shall be deemed and considered as a charge against the United States for payment and satisfaction whereof the said United States and the public faith are hereby solemnly pledged. Now, 
This is the one that makes Dave Ramsey cry. This one gave Congress the authority to borrow money and incur debt. As I've said in my recent review regarding student debt forgiveness, the Bible does not tell us we can't borrow money. It tells us that we're kind of stupid to do so, that we enslave ourselves to those we owe the money to. But it doesn't tell us we can't. It does, however, say that we are to pay what we owe, regardless of what people who don't care about the Bible at all until they can rip something out of context for their own purposes say we are not partakers of the Old Testament Jewish-only law of the sabbatical or Shemitah year every seven years that mandates all debts are forgiven within the Israelites, not foreigners. Now, we are told to not pay our debts is wicked. To that end, we incurred a fairly hefty debt during the Revolutionary War, and with the Constitution and the ability to tax, they were able to slowly pay back debts they owed, culminating in 1835 when President Andrew Jackson actually finished paying off all of our debt, every bit of it. Now, with the Civil War, debt climbed to the highest it had ever been, but it was almost paid off again by about 1920, when World War I and then the Great Depression, and then World War II pushed debt to levels never before seen. However, the debt was on a fairly rapid decline as we paid back what we owed until about 1975. Since then, we've borrowed and borrowed with a slight decrease in the early 2000s, but basically Republican and Democrat alike has continued to spend our money and our country into oblivion. Each side, of course, justifies their expenditures as necessary, and it's agreed to by the base of each president. We're not on a good track right now. I think the slavery part is pretty accurate right now. And look, I understand the need to borrow money, but this is nothing but opening more and more credit cards as we fill up the last one with the thought that it'll never bite us. Again, that's a discussion for a different day. Moving to the final article, Article 13. Every state shall abide by the determinations of the United States in Congress assembled on all questions which by this confederation are submitted to them, and the articles of this confederation shall be inviolably observed by every state, and the union shall be perpetual, nor shall any alteration at any time hereafter be made in any of them unless such alteration be agreed to in a Congress of the United States and be afterwards confirmed by the legislatures of each state. Now, this just basically says, them's the rules, you agreed to them, now you have to follow them. And they give a little out, of course, in there to be able to amend the articles if needed. And so that's it. We've covered the 13 articles, the 13 categories and maybe 20 or so points that the Congress, of course, being assembled, felt were the most important things to put into a document that would govern the United States. I don't know about you, but from our vantage point today, doesn't this feel like it's woefully incomplete? Does it make you say, that's it? It seems like there should have been so much more. And we're right, there should have been, but not quite yet. So now the conclusion. And whereas it hath pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of the legislatures we respectively represent in Congress to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, know ye that we, the underside delegates, by virtue of the power and authority to us given for that purpose, do, by these presents, in the name and in behalf of our respective constituents, fully and entirely ratify and confirm each and every of the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, and all and singular the matters and things therein contained.' 
and we do further solemnly plight and engage the faith of our respective constituents that they shall abide by the determinations of the United States in Congress assembled on all questions which by the said Confederation are submitted to them, and that the articles thereof shall be inviolably observed by the states we respectively represent, and that the Union shall be perpetual, in witness whereof we have hereunto set our hands in Congress, done at Philadelphia, in the state of Pennsylvania, the ninth day of July, in the year of our Lord, 1778, and in the third year of the independence of America. So this basically said that if the states ratified the articles, the Congress promised to abide by them. They expected and requested the states and the population at large to abide by them. And by doing so, they would be a perpetual union. We would be a unified country. Notice that the first phrase in that first long sentence started with imploring God, literally saying to the states, we've given you the best we've got. We believe this is a solid document. We want you all to sign on to it, but this is totally up to God. If it's God's will, this document will be ratified. Now, I don't know what the plan B was if this wasn't ratified. If there even was a plan B, obviously it doesn't matter. But they implored the will of God and left it there. This is something that as evangelical Christians, at least from my observation, and I realize that this is a generalization, but it doesn't seem like we really do this anymore. We pray for relief from illness or pain. We pray for relief from financial pressures. We pray that our wants, desires, and needs are met the way we'd like them to be. But how often do we pray that God knows best? And whatever his will is, whatever his plan is, that's what we want. Knowing that any plan we'd have counter to God's plan would be worse. This includes sickness, death, poverty, pain, and everything we perceive as good or bad in our lives. It's not easy to pray for the healing of a loved one, but if God's plan is for that person to not be healed, to succumb to the illness, so be it. It's not easy to pray for relief from a personal situation, but if this is what God has for me, I know it's the best thing for me. Even Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn in his side. And of course, there's all sorts of speculation as to what that thorn was. I have my own theory. But bottom line is that Paul was told, no, this was going to be something that would glorify God, that would show the power of Jesus through Paul's weakness. And so Paul said, your will be done. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't continue to pray for relief. But from how this is phrased... I tend to believe that he stopped praying for relief from this thorn, whatever it was. The Congress assembled, I had to get it in there one more time, authored a document that was not specifically faith-based in any way, except that I can guarantee they sought God's guidance as they wrote it. They prayed for God's will to be that it would be ratified, and then they left it to God. And this brings us to the end of our look at the Articles of Confederation. Now, how many of you have ever read this document? Looking looking, seeing no hands. <laughs> yeah, and why would you, right? I mean, but as we move into our Constitution, you'll now be able to understand where we came from and what we ran under for about eight years. And you will clearly hear the, I believe, divine inspiration of the Constitution. Again, God could have just inspired the authoring of the Constitution right away. But as it seems is most usually the case, God allows us to try, fail, learn, and try again. So, in the next episode of The American Genesis, we will start to see what was learned, and the next and final attempt at creating a document to manage, govern, and unify a collection of autonomous states. So with that, I'll meet you back here for the next episode of The American Genesis, The Constitution, Congress Assembled. 
And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast@outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.